on Sunday, October 30th, 1938. At about 8.15 in the evening, the following was heard over CBS airwaves. Streets are all jammed. Noise and crowds like New Year's Eve in the city. Wait a minute. The enemy is now in sight. Five, five great machines. The first one is is crossing over the river. I I can see it from here. A a bulletin's been handed to me. Martian cylinders are, are falling all over the country. One outside Buffalo. One in Chicago. St. Louis. They seem to be timed and spaced. Now the first machine has reached the shore. A A man stands watching, looking over the city. He waits for the others. They rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal heads. This is the end now. Smoke is coming out. Black smoke is drifting all over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running towards the East River. Thousands of them dropping in like rats. The smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They're falling like flies. The smoke's crossing 6th Avenue, 5th Avenue, 100 yards away. It's 50 feet away. (coughs) Choking. And silence comes across the airwaves, followed by 2X2L calling CQ. 2XL calling CQ. New York. Is there anyone on the air? Is there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone? Within minutes of the broadcast, the station's New York-based producer was on the phone with an irate Midwestern mayor demanding that the station cease its broadcast because mobs had begun crowding the streets of his town. Soon after that, reporters from all other news outlets poured into CBS's headquarters demanding answers. See, this news broadcast had reportedly sent so many people into a panic that it was actually a problem. The broadcast was just a radio show, a dramatic production of H.G. Wells' novel, The War of the Worlds. Yet despite the obviously fictional nature of the story, a good number of people really thought that Martians had invaded New York City. It's easy to be deceived. It's easy to deceive oneself. In a similar way to those who thought that aliens had arrived on earth, many in the Corinthian church were living as if the kingdom of God had already arrived on earth in its fullness. They were living this life as if it was all that there was. They had deceived themselves into adopting the status-seeking values of the world, the wisdom of the world, as if it were the wisdom of God. Today we'll see that Paul is going to correct their misguided theology of glory with a theology of the cross. We're going to do it in two parts. Humbling truths, which is going to be verses 6 and 7, and then humble living, verses 8 through 21, and and you can see the subsections there. Uh, Our main idea that I kind of want to hang over top of this text for you is be the church, be humble. I also want to note, I had intended to go through all 21 verses because they all go together. It's one nice flowing argument. Um, 
but I got hung up on verse 7, and so we're only going to cover the, the first section of uh, this text this morning. So it's just verses 6 and 7. But don't get excited. That doesn't mean that it's going to be like a two-second sermon, all right? Some of you are already looking at your watches. All right, we're out of here. 11.30. More likely the response will be, is this really just two verses? But hopefully it will benefit you and you will be encouraged. Be the church, be humble. Let, let's pray and we'll, we'll get into this. Lord Jesus, we ask that you help us to see with clear eyes and hearts full of your spirit that we might apply your holy words to our lives, that we might be poked and prodded where we need to be into repentance, and that we might be encouraged where we need to be encouraged. Lord, we thank you that we are all able to together say that we are imperfect people. We thank you that we can come here despite the fact that our lives are not all clean and clear of any troubles, um, that we are far from perfect. We, we thank you that we can come before you a, as a mess and that you love us. That knowing our need of you is the perfect knowledge for us to have because it's in, it's in finding our need of you that we are able to find satisfaction in you. Lord, meet our needs now. Quench our thirst and our hunger with your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read this in context a little bit. We'll, we'll read over the section we did last week, and then we'll get into verses 6 and 7. A person should think of us, that's Paul and the other church leaders at this point, in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself for I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So do not judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. Paul makes clear at this point what should already be seen clearly by the Corinthians. Paul and Apollos and other Christian leaders are merely servants of God, building on the foundation of Christ Jesus in order to please God. They, along with any other leaders, are gifts to the church. And the measure of a good teacher is not his giftedness or his famousness, but faithfulness to God's word. Faithfulness in teaching God's revelation of himself in the scriptures. I think one of the best pieces of counsel I ever received uh, in my life was this, in regards to being a pastor, was you be faithful, let Jesus be famous. Don't work on your, your brand or building yourself up in some kind of uh, weird, arrogant sort of way, you just be faithful to the text and let Jesus be the famous one. 
It was, it was and is a great reminder that it's not my job as an elder or the job of any pastor to please others or themselves. Good Christian leaders do not concern themselves with building their brand. They concern themselves with faithfulness to God's message and mission. We see to go beyond what is written is to build oneself up rather than God's church. Going beyond what is written is the result of arrogance and results in more arrogance in both teacher and pupil. I do love the word for arrogance in verse 6 here. Uh, It's a great one. Some of your translations bring it across this way so you can get the feel of it. Uh, It means to be inflated with pride, or my favorite is puffed up, puffed up with pride. And so we have here Paul getting ready to deflate the puffed up church in Corinth. Uh, I picture a hot air balloon that is powered by hay and straw and wood of poor leadership and it's floating away from the foundation of Christ as Paul kind of punctures a hole in it and brings them back down to earth, back down to the proper foundation. Anthony Thistleton comments, the misguided attempt to add to the gospel of the cross by self-styled wisdom, rhetorical status-seeking, or self-styled spirituality will result in an inflation of mere wind that will lead to taking sides self-affirmation, and putting one group or its leaders against another. And that's exactly the situation in the Corinthian church. They're pitting one group and its leaders against another group and its leaders. They've puffed themselves up by siding with this or that particular teacher, and they've followed these imposters. That's what Christian leaders who go beyond Scripture are. They're imposters. They followed the teaching of these imposters into ungodly thinking and living. When you go beyond what is written, when you go beyond biblical revelation, both your creed and your conduct will end up twisted and corrupt. You will become arrogant, trusting in men rather than in God. That's part and parcel to what this phrase means, nothing beyond what is written. It means to to live according to Scripture. I wonder... If any of you have those Brita water filters, have you seen those bad boys? Some of you might have them. But you, you like put the water in there and then you put it in the fridge. And, you know, for a long time I was like, I don't understand this. Why the middleman just put the water in my glass? I'll be good to go. Uh, but what the Brita does is it filters the impurities out of the water so that you can have a really fresh and pure glass of water. It's better. And so, so people have Brita filters Uh, in order to make sure they get real, just the water. They don't want any of the impurities. What, What Paul is saying here is that the word of God needs to function for us like a filter. It needs to be the filter through which we run all the teaching we receive, so that only that which is truly from God enters into our hearts, enters into our lives. When folks go beyond what God has revealed in the Bible, and teach it as truth. It is an impurity. And when we believe it, it sullies our souls and leads us into unfaithfulness. If we are not careful to filter our teaching, um, we are just as sinful and stupid as the Corinthians, and, and we will repeat their errors. We will divide ourselves according to personal tastes and whatever helps inflate our pride. 
our job as Christians is not to go beyond the Word of God. It's not to make the Word of God more palatable for those who cannot stomach it. Our job is to humbly submit to the Word. If you've ever seen a, a tennis match, you've got two people, and they, yeah, two people play tennis. You guys are like, that's brilliant. But uh, they, 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 they sit down here, and then in the middle is, I don't know what he's called, um, judge, official, referee, uh, help. Umpire? Really? I thought that was a baseball thing. The umpire sits uh, above in this chair, and he looks down, and he adjudicates what is in or out, and if the rules are being followed. He, he makes all the judgments. And I wonder, w- with respect to God's word, do you, are you kind of on the court being judged by it? Or do you put yourself in the place of the umpire? Are you, are you sitting above God's word, making judgments about it? Christians are those who humbly submit themselves to the message and mission of Jesus we are those who submit ourselves to God's word. This, this has been reflected in even the architecture of churches throughout history. It is not a mere coincidence that I am standing on a raised platform at the center behind a pulpit upon which the Bible is opened. It is to be symbolic that we, that you and I are sitting underneath the teaching of God's word. That we are submissive to it. Because it is the Word that teaches us. The Word that teaches us that God is above us. That His Word is above us. That He is the center of our worship. That He is the reason we gather. Paul is reminding the Corinthians of the reason they have for unity. It's because of the work of God. Not some teacher that they've decided to follow because they're really creative and really eloquent. And so he moves on to verse 7. And this is where his argument gets very, very pointed. Verse 7. For who makes you superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? The fall has given us all too high a view of ourselves with a correspondingly low view of others. Instead of offering humble thanksgiving for the gifts we've received from God, we, like the Corinthians, allow the gifts to become a sign of status and a source of dissension. The gifts that uh, were to lead the Corinthians and are to lead us into a more deep love for God, into rejoicing in God, instead become pedestals upon which we climb to stand above one another. It's a little bit like uh, a parent who gives a gift to their child, uh, hoping that the gift will bring joy, but instead discovers that the, the child uses the toy as a reason to gloat over his or her brothers and sisters. You know, draw comparisons. You, you've seen this, right? Uh, Dad gave me this toy. He loves me more than you. He gave me this toy because I'm better than you are. Um, or my, my favorite childhood quote, na-na-na-na, boo-boo, right? I've got this and you don't, and it's because something special in me that they gave me this gift. 
This is, this is what we do with the spiritual gifts of God. This is what we do when we attach ourselves or identify ourselves according to uh, some, ma- some really special Christian leader or teacher, rather than Christ, more so than Christ. The idea that our gifts are an occasion for pride is a preposterous lie. It's a deranged and evil way of thinking. And Satan and demons work hard to get you to believe that you have reason to feel superior to others. Uh, C.S. Lewis does a great job of capturing this throughout a book he wrote called The Screwtape Letters, wherein a rookie demon by the name of Wormwood is being mentored by a senior demon named Screwtape through, you guessed it, a series of letters. Screwtape advises the junior tempter Wormwood about how to best lead his human, who's known as the patient, away from God, who is referred to as the enemy. This is one, one section of uh, one of Screwtape's letters. He writes to Wormwood, The enemy will also try to render real in the patient's mind a doctrine, which they all profess, but find it difficult to bring home to their feelings. The doctrine that they did not create themselves, that their talents were given to them, and that they might as well be proud of the color of their hair. Screwtape is advising Wormwood against the patient's understanding of God's grace. He's telling him, puff him up with pride. Make him think that the gifts he has, that the talents that he has, that the color of his hair have to do with what he has done rather than what God has done, right? To be proud of your hair color is stupid. You didn't do anything to make it that color, save for you who color your hair, right? Just stick with the illustration here, right? Your natural hair color. To brag about how tall you are is silly. You didn't do anything to make yourself that tall. To boast about where you were born is ridiculous. You didn't do anything to make yourself born where you were born. Our ability to turn God's gifts, hair color, height, where we were born, into reasons for being proud is astounding. One thinks of a proud Texan. I'm from Texas, born and bred, who then discovers he was born in Oklahoma and is shamed It makes no sense to say, I'm the tallest, I'm the fastest, I'm the strongest, I have the best hair color. You you didn't do anything to receive those gifts. Yet this sort of one-upmanship exists among us in the church. We find silly ways of elevating ourselves above others. This sort of one-upmanship among those who have been redeemed by a crucified Messiah is repulsive. We need to repent of thinking ourselves better than others because of gifts we have received. And friends, everything that we have has been received. Paul's questions here are meant to be transforming. They're questions that should change your life. Transforming question uh, is something that always makes me think of how Apple Lord John Scully Uh, away from Pepsi. I don't know if you guys know this story or not, but uh, the story goes like this. Uh, John Scully had a really cushy job at the Pepsi Corporation, 
made a ton of money, and Apple wanted him to be their CEO. They thought that he had marketing skills that would really help them out as they tried to um, put a flag down in the computer market. And the story goes that time and time again, Scully refused Apple's overtures. Until in a conversation with Steve Jobs, he was confronted with a transforming question. Jobs asked him at the end of trying to persuade him, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life or do you want to change the world? Scully served as CEO of Apple from 1983 to 1993. John Scully's life was transformed with a question. His perspective was changed. It was no longer enough to just make a lot of money and, and sell a lot of Pepsi. He wanted to change the world. The question transformed him. It changed his perspective. And that's the effect that Paul's questions here are meant to have on us. They are meant to change our perspective. They're meant to transform our thinking and our living. Christian, listen and consider these words. Who makes you superior? What do you have that you did not receive? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? These questions should shrivel up any little slice of pride that is living within you. I mean, do you see how foolish it is to boast in anything but the Lord? To brag about anything is the height of folly. What do you have that you did not receive? Gordon Fee writes brilliantly, this is an invitation to experience one of those rare, unguarded moments of total honesty, where, in the presence of the eternal God, one recognizes that everything, absolutely everything that one has, is a gift. Are you particularly skilled at something? God gave you that skill. Are you knowledgeable, just really brilliant? God gave you that mind. Have you achieved a certain title or position? God gave you that opportunity. But you quip, I've worked really hard for all of my achievements. True. But where did you get the strength and the health and the motivation to work hard? God. Absolutely everything you have has been given to you by God as a gift. What, what makes you different, Christian? God graciously chose me. God graciously revealed the gospel to me. God rescued me graciously. God graciously gave me the gift of repentance and faith. God graciously called me to Himself. Ephesians 1, 3-10 captures this well. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, 
to be holy and blameless in love before Him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace that He lavished on us in the Beloved One. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace that He richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, that He purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in Him. The message of Christianity is that you and I are dead in our sins and deserving of the eternal and just wrath of God. But God, by His grace, as a gift, decided to set His love on us before time began so that we might be adopted into His family through the substitutionary life and death and resurrection of His Son. But you say, what is my part in all of this? Nothing! You did all the sinning. God does all the saving. It is not a group effort. How do you know if you've been given the gift of salvation? You honor Jesus as Lord by turning from your sins and trusting in Him. Non-Christian, there is no one to blame but yourself if you remain a non-Christian. You too are to follow the prompting of the Spirit and obey the command of the Gospel to repent and believe. Are there legitimate questions about human responsibility and divine sovereignty? Sure. But I believe this to belong in the category of those wonderful mysteries that God has not yet untangled for us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is true. The hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever, so that we may follow all the words of this law. These are things that God has not revealed to us, but our job is not to speculate on what is hidden. Our job is not to speculate how to reconcile God's complete sovereignty and our responsibility, but to believe the things that God has revealed to us. I imagine that if God did reveal to us a great many things, including uh, how to reconcile div divine sovereignty and human responsibility, that it would be akin to trying to explain to a four-year-old how quantum mechanics work. I mean, we can't even spell it, let alone understand it at four years old. We are not to try and figure out God as if he is a mathematical algorithm to be solved but to trust and obey to believe the gospel that is our job don't miss the revealed truth of God's word God chose to love you Christian even though you were unlovely God worked to bring you into his family at the expense of of his son. Now you, you hear stories about people that are uh, generally big-hearted, that will go out and will adopt children into their family, make their family bigger even though they have no relation to them. I've heard lots of stories about that. 
But I, I've never heard a story, except the gospel story, about a family who gave up their own biological child to adopt another. This is what God has done for us. Friends, we are so wicked that it took the death of the Son of God to save us. Our salvation required a crucified Messiah. The cross was the only way that God could end evil without ending us because we were evil, dead in our sins. The cross was the only way to make atonement for sin. The cross is the only way for God to reconcile Himself with us. How can any thoughtful person be arrogant beside the cross of Christ? The truth of the cross is underneath verse 7 and its nails can be felt punching a hole in our puffed up pride. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? These questions are meant to have a humbling effect. Christian, what, what would your life have been like had you not turned from your sin and trusted in God? If everything you have has been received, how can you be arrogant? How can you have any pride? Gordon Fee writes, Grace leads to gratitude. Wisdom and self-sufficiency lead to boasting and judging. Grace has a leveling effect. Self-esteem has a self-exalting effect. Grace means humility. God's grace to us in Jesus should lead us both into humility and gratitude. I wonder, are you grateful? Or have you deceived yourselves, as the Corinthians did, that you are self-made? Our sinfulness makes it easy to turn occasions for humble thanksgiving, 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 into opportunities to inflate our egos. We are so prone to enjoying God's gifts while forgetting that God is the gift giver. We must continually be in the practice of reminding ourselves that we have been given absolutely everything that we have. I think we are most prone to forget when things are very good. But it is in the face of God's blessing that God's grace will continue to humble us. We must remind ourselves of grace constantly. I, do, I love in the book of Joshua, we're studying through it on Thursday nights. Uh, it, well, let me tell you about the book a little bit first. Uh, it revolves around conquest. Uh, the people of God have once again uh, come to the edge of the promised land, and they are about to go in. Uh, they're in the same place that their parents were 40 years prior, and they, they send spies into the land again, just like their parents did prior. But the first time when their parents were there, they sent in 12 spies, and 10 came back and said, this is awful, we can't take these people, we can't take the land. Whereas the other two, which were Joshua who the book's named after, and Caleb came back and said, God is going to give us the land, you crazy people. 
And so what God did was say, hey, you guys want to wander in the wilderness? You said it would be better for us to die in the wilderness? Well, I'll give you what you want. You'll wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all of you who did not have faith will die, that you can have what you want. And so now they find themselves here, ready to enter into the promised land again. They send spies in to Jericho, and they come back and give a different report. I'm going to read the first report to you and then contrast it with the second. So here's the original report from their parents' generation in Numbers 13.31. We can't attack the people because they are stronger than we are. The land we passed through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants. All the people we saw in it are men of great size. To ourselves, we seemed like grasshoppers, and we must have seemed the same to them. That's the first report. Now, here's the the report that they give now, that they're ready to enter the land again, that the, the children of these parents give. Then the men returned, that's the spies, came down from the hill country and crossed the Jordan. They went to Joshua, son of Nun, and reported everything that had happened to them. They told Joshua, The Lord has handed over the entire land to us. Everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of us. Long story short, the people of God believe God this time around. In obedience to God and in obedience to God, they go into the promised land through the Jordan River just as their ancestors had come out of Egypt through the Red Sea. Difference this time, though, is that instead of Israel's leader raising his hands and splitting apart the body of water, this time the priest carried the Ark of God, and as their toes came up to the water line, that caused the water to split, and then they stood in the center of the the Jordan on dry ground and held the Ark while the whole nation came across, and it shows us that God was going before his people and was present with his people. And as they come out, as they've come across the land, this is what we read at the front end of chapter 4. After the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua. Choose twelve men from the people, one man for each tribe, and command them. Take twelve stones from this place, and in the middle of the Jordan where the priests are standing, carry them with you, and set them down at the place where you spend the night. And then at the end of chapter 4, Then Joshua set up in Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken from the Jordan. And he said to the Israelites, In the future, when your children ask their fathers, What is the meaning of these stones? You should tell your children. Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the water of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, just as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. So, This is so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is mighty and so that you may always fear the Lord your God. In verse 7 of chapter 4, we're told that these stones will be a memorial. And if you read through the book of Joshua, you will discover that there are piles of stones everywhere. Like they just go from place to place, city to city, conquering people after people and leaving piles of stones behind them. It is intentional. The stones are reminders of God's greatness and of his gifts. It's a reminder that God was the one who brought them out of Egypt. It was God who brought them into the promised land. It was God who delivered them from their enemies and gave them the gift of the land. So here's where it comes full circle. You're wondering, like, what on earth is he doing? He's all the way in Joshua. We were here. What's going on? We are prone to forget God's grace when we are blessed. 
And so we need to fight against that. As Israel gets ready to embark upon a time of tremendous blessing in their history, God is having them set up memorials. Why? To remind them of his grace. And so here's the application. What, What are some ways that you can put piles of stones into your life as reminders of God's grace to you? We as a church have some built-in reminders of the gospel, right? We're reminded of God's grace every time we gather together here. We're reminded of God's grace every time we listen to the preaching of the word. We're reminded of God's grace every time we sing. We are reminded of God's grace every time we pray and give and fellowship. We are reminded of his grace when we participate in communion. But what about you as an individual? Do you have touchstones in your everyday that remind you of God's grace? Build gratitude into your life by putting reminders of God's grace into your daily activities. Write yourself a note and stick it on the refrigerator. That would be a good way for some of us. We go to the fridge a lot. Change your phone or computer background so that it reads like a passage of Scripture. Hang art in your house that causes you to rejoice in God's goodness. A really easy way to remember is to simply pray every time you eat or drink. But like really pray, not in the rote way where you're just like, all right, let's get this over with, amen. Let's eat. Food does have a way of slowing us down and connecting us with others, reminding us of the past. In food writer Nigel Slater's autobiography, he describes how as a boy he once said that his mom's kisses were like marshmallows. When he was nine, his mother died. And his father started leaving marshmallows beside his bed every night. Put some marshmallows on your nightstand. Remind yourself of God's goodness of his sweetness to you in Christ. Build reminders of God's tender care for you into your life. Do not forget that anything you have, anything you have, is from him. I mean, be creative. Put reminders into your life so that you don't forget I mean, if you don't want to be creative, just put a literal pile of stones somewhere in your house. Make sure you trip over it. Daily, be putting these questions in verse 7 to yourself. Who makes me superior? What do I have that I did not receive? If in fact I did receive it, why do I boast as if I had not received it? And make sure you're not deceiving yourself either. We, we are good, and we talked about this in Sunday school a couple weeks ago, but we're good at taking pride in almost anything. And, and some of us are even good at turning humility into a grounds for boasting, right? Everybody come and look how humble I am. I, I shared this story before, but when I was in seminary, I had a professor uh, who told us about a Sunday upon which he went and listened to a student preacher 
and on his way out the door, he overheard the young man saying to everybody on the way out, they, they would compliment his message, and the young man would say, it's all God, all glory to God, all God, all glory to God, I, all glory to God. So my professor uh, came and complimented his message and was met with the same response. All glory to God. This is all the work of God. And my professor responded, well, son, it wasn't that good. What, what he was doing in that moment was exposing the student's inability to receive encouragement and also the pride that he had hidden beneath the cloak of humility. Humility is slippery. Just when you think you've grasped it, out of your hands it slides. Friends, you will be helped in your pursuit of Christ-like humility if you cultivate it in the ground of gratitude. By building reminders into our lives, we are able to make a more regular practice of meditating on the grace extended to us. And when you think on the grace of God, it doesn't take long for your big head to shrink way down. The cross is the antidote to arrogance. It humbles God's people and it unites God's people. This is what Paul has been arguing for all four chapters that the church would recognize the doctrine of grace and as a result be humbled and see that their divisions based on arrogance are foolishness. He's trying to show them how silly they've been to exalt one person over and above another. He wants them to see grace so that their divisions will dissolve, that they will be in unity with one another. And so that the take-home for us is the same. The big overarching thing we need to take away from the first four chapters of Corinthians is be the church, be united. You don't have any grounds for boasting. All you have, you have only because of the loving kindness of God. So that brings us to our kind of theme of these two verses today that we've talked about. Be the church, be humble, 